1: Here is your host,
0: John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, every single Friday, I focus on exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. Now, this is only one of three shows that we have here on Lions of Liberty. We kick off every week on Monday. That's most people kick off their weeks. With a show hosted by Mark Claire, it's our longest-running program. And Mark, most of the time, is interviewing leaders in the liberty movement. He also hosts some roundtable discussions. Our hit, Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Liquor, normally appears every Monday. On Wednesday, we have a more lighthearted show where our host, Brian McWilliams, hosts Electric Liberty Land, a weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty And of course, this show, Felony Friday, a look at the criminal justice system every single Friday. Now, just a quick warning at the top of the show here before we get started. Now, the content of today's show that my guest and I discuss, it's tragic and it's definitely going to be a little bit uncomfortable uh, for a lot of listeners to hear. It might not be best to listen with young children around, you know, I'm not going to tell you guys how to, how to run your life, but I would say if you have some young children, you probably want to listen to this one by yourself first, and then you be the judge if you want them to hear it. It was important to me to state that, however, I don't want that to diminish at all how absolutely crucial uh, the content of today's show is. This is episode 109 of Felony Friday, so that means you'll be able to find the show notes at lionsofliberty.com. Slash FF109. And now, just a brief word from the sponsor of today's show. Are you or someone you know facing the prospect of going to prison? Facing a federal case is an extremely stressful time, and you'll be faced with confronting a situation that is both unfamiliar and confusing. You need to contact Dan Weiss, also known as RDAP Dan, and his team of specialists to assist you with fighting for your freedom. Your attorney handles the legal aspects of your case, but your prison consultant, they help you with qualifying for sentence reduction programs, avoiding common mistakes that zap your chances of an early release, and keeping a handle on anxiety and stress during this process. You can find out more and schedule a free consultation with Dan and his team by visiting linesoflibertycom slash RDAP. That's lionsofliberty.com slash R-D-A-P. My guest today on Felony Friday is David McNamara. David is a listener of this show. He's a member of the Lions of Liberty Forum. And a couple weeks ago, last month, the end of December, he reached out to me and uh, inquired if uh, I'll be interested in uh, having him on the show to, uh, to share his story. And David's story is, is very tragic. Um... It's something that, that personally, I'm you know I, I'm not able to imagine the what it's like to go through something like David has has gone through um, in his life, and I'm not going to get into what that is right now because most of the show is is going to talk about that. Without any further ado, David, welcome to Felony Friday.
1: Thank you, John. It's nice to talk to you.
0: Well, thank you for agreeing to come on the show and and talking about um, sharing your story. Um, you know, I know this is definitely not something that's going to be easier for you to go through, but as we talked about when we were going back and forth in in Facebook messenger, um, you know, th- this is, this is something that I, I think a lot of times people see, um, accidents like this, um, things, things that happen and, you know, they read a headline and blame is assigned without knowing uh, exactly the, the details of the story. And also, um, you know what happens after that—the criminal justice system aspect of it. So, I want to get through all of that um, before we, you know, get into that, though, just so you know our, our audience can, can can get to know you a little bit better and get to know your, your background and you know, that, you know, the things leading up to this story. Uh, where, where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in uh, Ellington, Connecticut. It's a very small, cow town. You know, I didn't. I, you know, I didn't have uh, you know a messed up life or anything like that. I, you know, I had both my parents were part of the picture. Um, I had three, uh, two, two older brothers. You know, an older sister. I was I was technically considered an only child. They were much older than I was. I was I was kind of um, not a mistake, but I was I was unplanned. <laughs> I, I grew up you know in a normal house. You know, there was there was no abuse. My father was a, a previous, you know, he was a drug addict well before I was born, and um, uh, he, it caused him a lot of health problems. And then uh, ultimately, he he turned to religion to, you know, to find his way out. But uh, I, I believe that addiction is is a hereditary thing, and um, it has it has definitely been passed down to his to his children alcoholism I, I got an Irish last name come from a, a family of alcoholics and when I hit my you know teenage years is I started to rebel and and get into alcohol and partying and um dropped out of school started working you know kind of went from there on my own path
0: right so you didn't have any any run-ins with the law growing up any any arrests anything like that
1: It was, like I said, it was such a small town. Um, We didn't even have our own police force. We had, uh, they call them, in Connecticut, they call them resident state troopers. And these guys were basically uh, homegrown people from Ellington that um, were assigned back to Ellington because of their their roots. And, uh, you know, they... (laughs) To be honest, they they almost enabled us because they were very, very lenient with us. They would do anything that they could to just not not bring us in and not have to do the paperwork. Which I was, I mean, I was fine with. It wasn't anything crazy where, you know, I didn't grow up in a city. I grew up, like I said, I grew up in a very, It was. it's actually Ellington, Connecticut. If you, if you look into it, it's a very... Uh, they call them the Swiss religions. It's almost like a, like an Amish uh, offset, and uh, they're very very strict, like religious people. We we couldn't have any uh, food, fast food chains in our town, anything like that, um, because they basically controlled the town. And I grew where I grew up in Crystal Lake, which is closer to uh, like Stafford, Connecticut, but. Um we were we were we actually were considered the the poor kids of the, of that town.
0: So let's uh let's, let's talk about you know the the accident that occurred and correct me if I'm wrong but I think this is 2008 time frame. Um so how 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 old were you when when this happened?
1: years ago I was I was 22 23 years old.
0: Okay so you're you're I mean you're you're young to 22 year old kid at this time and this is around around christmas time right
1: it was uh well what did happen you know my son my son was born on november 28th 2008 um it was actually it was the day after day after thanksgiving of that year and um so what happened was i was I was the girl that I was with we we had an apartment in uh, Vernon, Connecticut, the next town over from millington. I, I really haven't strayed far from you know where I grew up. What had happened was you know he was born we we took our son home, and then what happened was Christmas Eve of that year we he was about a month old, um just about a month old, and we came home from doing the family thing. Uh, got to our apartment, and we're coming down the road, and we just see a million fire trucks and and police officers right in front of our building. We couldn't even get close to it. So I I parked the car on the side of the road, and we we walk up to the house, and, you know, the police tell us what happened. What had happened was this, uh, you know, this 16-year-old kid tried to steal his mom's car, but it never... Apparently had never driven a car before, and crashed it directly into our our apartment unit. They could not get a building inspector out to say that the building was safe to to enter, so they condemned the whole building and said, "Okay, well you you know, basically we're gonna we're gonna put you in a hotel and that's that. You can't go in. You know, it's Christmas Eve. Nobody nobody's gonna come out." So what they did was they, they put us uh, in a hotel. It was it's actually on the Vernon, Connecticut, and Manchester town line in Connecticut, and uh, they told us that the Red Cross was going to show up uh, the next morning, which would be Christmas morning, and that they were going to take care of everything that we needed. So we the only thing that we had for my son my you know my my one month old son to sleep in was his car seat. Which you know, obviously, not the ideal situation to be in. And I will also say that this is you know one of knowing how I've always been like this crazy, reckless sleeper, where I will I will toss and turn and will end up in the weirdest positions uh, when I do fall asleep. So this was not the ideal situation to be in. We wake up on Christmas morning. The Red Cross is there waiting for us. Uh, and they hand us, they hand me a, a like a, a debit card. Basically, they said, "There's there's seven hundred and fifty dollars on here. You go out and get whatever you need." Well, I looked at the guy and I said, "You know, it's it's Christmas morning at eight o'clock. There's you know there's nothing is going to be open today where you know I could get a pack and play. I could get you know a portable crib, something like that." And well, he said, like, "You know, well, you know, we're not really equipped for that, so." You know, this is what we can do for you. We're all completely stressed out. The entire building had to get evacuated. It was a six-family uh, unit, like the home that got hit. So there's six six families that are just out on their asses right now and we're living in this hotel. And we ended up staying there for almost, a, it was over a week after, after the, the car guy, you know, hit us. So again, you know, we tried to make the best of the day, on, you know, Christmas Day, we went to my family's house. Um, it was Christmas. And, uh, and I, I, this is where, you know, I don't, don't want to sound like I'm trying to make excuses for myself and, and what happened. But I probably had maybe a little over a six-pack of beer, you know, with my family, with my brothers. My grandfather was still around. You know, we, we just basically did just the normal holiday thing. We got back to the hotel room. That, you know, that night, probably around nine o'clock, my son James woke up at about midnight and I was still up. I was, you know, my mind was kind of reeling about just, you know, everything, you know, when are we going to go home? He woke up. I knew that the girl that, you know, his mother was stressed out. She was she was sleeping at the time. So I made. The dumbest choice of my entire life. And I, I picked my son up out of the car seat. I laid down on, it was a double bedroom. I laid down on one of the beds of them. And I I, I attempted to rock him back to sleep. Uh, and in the process, I fell asleep. Now, he was, not, he was not breastfeeding, so we kind of had a set time. So I had an alarm on my phone that would go off. Um, and the alarm went off at five a.m. and I woke up. And during the night, I I had rolled over on top of him. Uh, you know, like I am immediately I, I knew right from the get-go that he was he was gone. Um, I, I called I called nine one one. They told you know they told me okay we're sending you know we're sending someone over there right now, just like oh you know they told me open his mouth and I you know take two fingers open his mouth and try to you know start performing CPR, and when I open his mouth his I mean his tongue was black and it was just it was it's it was almost out of body I mean. It was at that point where I just, I I knew he was he was gone. And um, there's one thing that, you know, there's this one guy and I've, I've seen him a couple times since then, cause again, I still live in Vernon and it was a Vernon police officer who first came running through the door. And I'll just, I'll, you know, I'll never forget that guy's face. I, you know, I can only imagine what I looked like, but I, I, I just, that cop's face has, has haunted me um, because he knew, too. And when I saw it on his face, I knew, you know, I knew what was going on. I knew that there wasn't a chance of, you know, reviving him. Um, but again, so what, you know, what came of it was we got to the hospital uh, we were in that cop in the back seat of his car following the ambulance. Um, and when it really hit me was was when you know we were right behind the ambulance and the ambulance turned off the lights while we were following and I just I knew you know that's that's it you know if, that, if that's if they're turning those lights off, Right now, when you know we're following him like this, it's you know it's, it's no longer an emergency. He was he was gone.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know what to say, man. I mean, to go through to I mean, that's every 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 parent's nightmare, obviously. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, yeah.
0: So after you know after you you, you bury your son and. You know, I'm sure the, the, that sent you and your your uh, your girlfriend at the time into uh, down down a rough road.
1: Um, I mean, it was the road to hell. <laughs> I mean, to be completely honest, you know, I my 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 oldest brother is uh, is actually a, a pastor of a Pentecostal church, and <laughs> uh, you know, he showed up and you know just he he had kids you know he has kids you know just seeing his face there was just so much that was just it was yeah it was the hardest experience of my life um putting him in the ground you know just seeing him after you know you know giving him away at the hospital and when they took him away and you know perform the autopsy because they had to legally they had to and um you know, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. It, it's one of those things where it's just, it's it's just not not the natural order of things. You know, so
0: yeah, um, absolutely. That's <clears throat> it's uh, yeah. Nobody, no parent ever ever even considers um, the or, or wants to consider the the chance that they'll bury their child after this happens. When was the first time that you heard or thought or were told that there might be criminal uh, charges against you?
1: Well, we had to, um, you know, we had to make statements. We had to go to the, because like I said, what, what ended up happening was that the hotel itself that we were in, that we were put in, was on, it's directly split on the town line of Manchester and Vernon. Connecticut um, so Manchester took jurisdiction of the case uh, and what part of my theory as, as to why the Manchester police came down on me so hard was two nights after this had happened um, I was an absolute mess um, and we were still at the hotel so I go I had a, there was, I, I had a very close friend of mine from kindergarten. He was with me. Um, and I, I had walked outside um, just to get some air because I, just, I I just couldn't be in that building anymore. And I was just absolutely losing my mind. and um, outside the door of the hotel, this guy walks by with his girlfriend. While I'm, you know, bawling and my friend is consoling me and, he, you know, he called, he called me a pussy. And I, I kind of lost it. Um, and I, I charged after him and I, 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 I pinned the guy against his car and my buddy was able to, he, he grabbed me and, and pulled me off, said, Dave, you know, just calm, you know, calm down. And this guy says, "Well, I'm, well, I'm calling the cops." He calls the cops, and um, I, I, I knew it was coming, so I sat outside and I waited for it. Um, three, three of the Vernon police officers showed up, and they started talking to me. I, you know, they knew they were aware of the situation, so I explained who I was, um, and they were like, "Okay, well, we'd like to take you to Rockville Hospital." which is part of Vernon to get you, you know, looked at and, and, you know, evaluated. And I was fine with that. I was, I was going to go with them. And as I was talking to them, seven Manchester police cruisers come around the other side of the hotel. And they basically said, Nope, you know, you guys get out of here. This is our case. Um, and they wanted, they wanted to bring me to Manchester, which is where I had just given my son away. So I started pleading with them to, you know, can you, can you just let me go with, with them? I will, you know, go to Rockville. It, it would, you know, probably be a little bit better for me if I'm not in that same emergency room. And, nope, nope, nope. And, um, what ended up happening was a guy, uh, I still remember the guys, uh, Sergeant Miner. He, he came up behind me and he grabbed me by my arm and uh, put me in like an arm lock from behind and, and jerked my arm up. And I just, I kind of instinctively pulled back and they all just, they all just jumped on me. Um, and I just, I, I resisted it tooth and nail and they finally, they slammed my head into the, the vehicle, threw me in the car, and they brought me to Manchester where I waited for about three hours and a doctor came in and I talked to him. I told him everything that had happened and he was like, okay, well, it sounds like you're, you're, you're grieving in a very deep way. So do you want to go home? And I said, yes. He said, okay, well put your clothes on. You're, you're getting up. Um, and at that point, you know, Manchester, I think really took it, kind of personally, that I was able to, you know, fight back and get sent home in a couple hours, Uh, because it it then took over, it was almost a year to the day um, for them to come and arrest me. Uh, They charged me with manslaughter in the second degree and risk of injury to a minor in the first degree. Um, and like I said, that's, that's when, you know, that's when everything started with the court system. I, I, I had no clue that it was coming.
0: I want to share with you all a very important service that can help you or someone you know who's going to prison. As I've documented many times on this show, sometimes even good people end up in prison and facing a federal sentence can be an incredibly stress-filled time. If you're facing this reality, then you need to contact Dan Wise, also known as RDAP Dan. I promise you that Dan and his team of prison consultants will reduce your stress level immediately after speaking with them on the phone. If you retain Dan's services, you can call him and his team any time of day or night, giving you and your loved ones open access to support and answers. Dan and his team assist with the following aspects of the process. Narrative letters to the judge, character reference letters, RDAP qualification, prison designation, online reputation management, mindset coaching, and also additional halfway house time to shorten your time in prison. Now, don't sleep on this one, guys. You can find out more and schedule a free consultation with Dan and his team by visiting lionsofliberty.com RDAP. That's lionsofliberty.com R-D-A-P. Uh, that was my next question so you had no warning they just showed up at your door.
1: It was 11 months to the day after after my son's death. Uh, I got a knock at the door at about 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, in this time in this time period I will say I mean I you know I, I like I like to drink before I was you know a 21 year old 22 year old kid. 23 year old kid and I, and I just that's its what I did you know I was I was living my life that's how I wanted to live my life but when this happened I really threw I, I just I kind of threw my life away I, I wanted to kill myself but I just I didn't have it in me to you know take a knife to my wrist or put a gun to my head and so I was pretty set on drinking myself to death um it was bad. It was it was very bad. Uh, it, to the point where I mean, dude, I was drinking a twelve pack and a natty ice a day. And if I didn't have that, I like I couldn't fall asleep.
0: Natty ice, man. I uh, yeah. That's <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's like a chunky beer. It's so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, I think about it now, and I even I like kind of want to puke in my mouth a little bit. But um. So. I, you know, I, I get that knock at that door, it was about 10, in the morning, um, and I knew what it was, as soon as, he, you, because you know a cop's knock, they don't knock like normal people, they, you know, they're the, they're really rapping at your door, and I was like, oh, what the, you know, there's cops at my door, Um, and I opened the door, and it was, you know, David, you're, uh, you're coming with us, and it was, what the fuck's going on? Well, and then you're under arrest for manslaughter in the second degree, and like I said, a uh, risk of injury to a minor, and um, in the first degree. And I was just like I said. I mean, I, at that point, I was I was so delirious about what was going on. Like I didn't even really understand. Um, until I got sent to county, you know, and I, I knew they they put my bail so high, there was no chance. Uh, you know, I I didn't grow up with any kind of money you know my family didn't have any kind of money like that um, there was no chance that i was gonna gonna get out even if we, they had gotten a bail bondsman it was i mean it was a ridiculous amount of money it was it was i had a hundred thousand dollar bond on me so i said it was it was manchester court that was conducting everything um which has their own courthouse and everything like that it's their own district I spent about two months in county, which anybody who has been to jail knows that you know when you when you get sent to county, like the county lockups, especially in Connecticut, there's only two of them, so they're they're completely overcrowded, and it's just, I mean, you're just, it's not like a normal jail situation. You're in there with guys coming off of heroin, coming off of meth, coming off of any PCP, that was, that was the worst, because uh, when I first got in, they put me on suicide watch because of the nature of the, cr- you know, the crime that I was charged with and everything that was going on, they put me on suicide watch, so I was, uh, for a week and a half, I was, first of all, detoxing off the alcohol, um, which, Jesus Christ, that was the... One of the worst experiences of my life. I lost 20 pounds in a week. I couldn't hold food down. I couldn't, you know, and, and, and in the same time, I'm, I'm, like, realizing, like, you know, this is where my decisions have led me. It, they're, they're like, there was a guy across the hall who was coming off of PCP um, and was just constantly screaming, uh, throwing feces and Cups of piss out the you know the little hole in the in the door. I mean it was a, it was a nightmare. There's two other guys just screaming constantly on the. It was incredibly inhumane because just nobody like came, nobody checked on like is, Nope, they're there. They got their you know this giant Teflon bodysuit that goes down. It's like a bulletproof vest basically that goes from. They just wrap around you and and it goes down to your knees so that you can't you know tear it apart and, and hang yourself
0: with it. so no no medical supervision in any way whatsoever
1: every it was every four hours somebody would come in and, and take my blood pressure and my and uh check my pulse and and then just walk away and now like i said i, I was in, i was in there like that for a week and a half and it's 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 even worse than what solitary is because um, the lights are on twenty four seven, so that they can look in on you at any time. And like I said, I mean, there's just there's it's constant scream, just people screaming and yelling for help and 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 needing something, and just there's no answer to it. It's just, and the only answer that you get is you know, shut the fuck up, shut up. Yeah, you, you know, you're fine you're fine. Shut up.
0: So how, how long did it take when you were going through withdrawal? How many you said over a week?
1: Yeah, it took me about, um, a week. Yeah. A week of, of withdrawals. Like I said, I just, just concentrate. It was, it was, it was terrible. You know,
0: did they move you after that or?
1: Yeah. They, yep. You know, after, you know, after I was, uh, cleared by the, uh, you know, the, the county uh, psychologist, they, they put me into uh, the dorms, which is, I mean, that's just another nightmare um, because it's just so, it's just so filthy uh, it, because it's so, like I said, just so overpopulated. I mean, there was, we, I mean, you couldn't, we couldn't even go to the gym this was also, you know, it's like I, it was. I was arrested in October, so going into it, I was, um, you know, getting into winter, and that's when a lot of people come in because a lot of, you know, there's just there's there's an insane amount of people who are, you know, homeless that will go out and basically commit this bullshit, you know, crime that they. I mean, they play the system. They, they know what they're going to get. They know what they're going to get sentenced to. So right around October, they'll, they'll go out and commit some bullshit crime and get put in the county for two, three months, wait out the cold, and then they're back out on the street. And that's how a lot of people, you know, I met, you know, I can't even tell you how many people that I met that were dead, told me that's what they do. You know that it's it's like a lifestyle to them.
0: Yeah, what a what a sad way to live. That's, it is yeah. it,
1: it, it it's you know it's terrible.
0: Mm-hmm. But with
1: with my case, what ended up happening? Um, I, I like I said, I was in Manchester and I didn't have any money. I didn't have any money for an attorney, anything like that. Um, I didn't even have a public defender when I was going to Manchester because at the time the prosecutor and the judge couldn't decide on what they wanted to do with me, um, and it got basically it was it ultimately is what ended up saving me from because I was facing um, 10 to 20 years for the two charges and what ended up saving me was they they basically said and they were like okay you know what we don't even want to touch this case we're going to send your case up to uh, Part A Court in Hartford, which is the capital, you know.
0: What what does that what does that mean Part A Court?
1: Part A Court basically um, you're going up there with the worst of offenders. Like it's like the the top tier of of crimes. Murder, rape, like you know, armed robbery, like, like crazy shit. So that's where I got, I got sent to Hartford, and I was appointed a public defender. And what I will say, I, I will give this guy the most credit in the world, because he, I mean, for a public defender, and I had, you know, I would had little uh, bouts with the law beforehand. The public defenders, they, I mean, they're paid shit, and they don't want to do anything. You know, it's, just, it's, it's a minimal amount of work just to just get my caseload off. Um, but this guy up there, I mean, he really went above and beyond and went nuts on my case. The other thing was, as I don't, at that point, I don't think he even had to, because I was sitting next to, I remember, um, one, one specific instance where I was in that court up in Hartford and I was sitting next to about three guys and, There was, you know, everybody was talking about, you know, what they were there for, except, you know, I was sitting next to this one guy who was just, you know, dead silent. And then they brought us all in, and this guy was a, he was a Haitian immigrant, uh, a Haitian illegal immigrant um, who had raped an 11-year-old girl. Jeez. And they, and so I'm up there for... And I'm sitting there like, and I wouldn't have known it because, like I said, he was silent. But, you know, the, the, the charges got read in front of us. They lined us up. You know, they they bring us all in and set us up front. And we heard the charges against them. And it was actually a sentencing. That day was his sentencing. And they, you know, they gave him 15 years in prison and then deportation back to Haiti. Which you know, to me, I, I'm sitting there like, you know, why? I mean, this is right after that earthquake happened. Why not just, you know, you're going to pay thirty five thousand dollars a year for this guy to have a roof over his head after what he did, and then send him back to to Haiti at the end of it? You know, what's what's the point? Hmm. Um. Well, that's that's neither here nor there.
0: But kind of just to touch on that. That kind of goes in, into the mentality that prison is a is a punishment more than anything. I mean, if they were trying, because why would you try to reform someone and then send them out of the country? It right. doesn't make any sense. But anyway, I, I digress. Continue.
1: The judge that I ended up getting, and this is where everything kind of, I really saw a lot of screwed up stuff was where there's this program in Hartford. i don't know if you want me to name it because it's it's actually a a well-known it's a nationally known um business that funds these these uh rehab programs basically
0: You you can name it if you want to i'm not gonna
1: okay well um the salvation army has these things called adult rehabilitation centers and there's one in Hartford. The completion rate of this program is something like uh, one out of every thirty to forty guys or girls, whatever. It's the it's it's a very low, very low completion rate. Um, and so the judge basically said, you know, after all, you know, after everything that my public defender did. Uh, you know, presenting the facts about you know the fact that this had I been home, had that kid never driven into my apartment, I wouldn't. I would never have been in this situation. It's it wouldn't have happened. It just it would not have happened. Um, and so this guy, this uh, his name was uh, Judge Gold. He gave me this chance. He said, "Look." You're, I'm gonna put you into this program. This program is extremely hard to complete. This is your one shot. And I you know obviously I, you know I'm gonna agree. I'm gonna do whatever I got to do um, to avoid because at that point I was in for I know, it was like over five months that I was sitting in county and this uh, program was a nine-month inpatient program and they called it a work therapy program. So basically what happens in this work therapy program is even though it's the Salvation Army is its own independent company, where I started to see a lot of screwed up things happening in this treatment program was this, was that it's a private, it's considered a privately owned company that provides the service for people, but... As soon as you get out, and, and I remember when they put me into this program, they, uh, the guy who was doing my outtake from the county said, look, we've had people go to this place. Just remember, you're still our property. That's what he told me. He, that was his exact words. He said, you're still our property. So I was still technically part of the, you know, the Department of Corrections when I got into this program. And then I get into this program, and you know the Salvation Army is a, a religious-based program, a Christian-based program. Um, but as soon as we got in there, the first thing that they did was they brought us to the Connecticut Department of Social Services, and we had to—they forced us to sign up for SNAP benefits and uh, health insurance like literally the first, second day that I was there, that's what they did. They took us, me and a couple other guys that were coming out of prison for this program because, like I said, it was... The, the judge basically used this as, you know, this your, this is your one sh- one shot at redemption. And he put us in there. And then when we got in there, like I said, they they put us right on state program, even though their claim is that everything that um they sell in their stores if you go to a Salvation Army store is what supports these adult rehabilitation centers so we get in there and like I said I went in there um that day when I got released I went into this program with four other guys um I was the only guy that made it out I I, I'm the only guy that graduated um because like I said I had so much, I I, I mean, my life was riding on
0: So, what do you attribute that to? Other than, I mean, just just because everything was riding on it, you were able to just push your way through, or
1: well, you, you know, what the, there was um, they did, you know, part of the program is that we had to do uh, AA, and I, I really. I, I I you know, I'm sober now but I don't I, I don't do AA because it is a very there's a lot of group mentality to it and um, I saw a lot of you know, bullshit drama going on in it. But it did help me when we first got in because um, I got a sponsor and the sponsor ended up after, you know, I told my story and I told what was going on we were allowed to leave this program and go to, like, outside AA meetings. And this guy really kind of pushed me to tell, tell my story as I'm telling it now. And um, the reaction that I saw from people, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many meetings I've been to. And where, you know, you, you'll get a speaker and you, then you get a bunch of... speaker speaks for, like, 45 minutes, half hour, or whatever... And then you have a half hour to 20 minutes people responding to it. And the first time that he actually made me do a a speaker meeting, I just remember it was, I mean, it was dead silent. Uh, And everybody just looked at me, you know, and then finally one guy spoke up. He said, you know, I I don't know how many meetings you've been doing. I know that you're probably used to people responding, but I don't think anybody knows how to respond to you right now. And I, you know, I, I kind of, I, yeah, I accepted that, but um, it, it's it's definitely something um, that I, you know, with everything that's happened, I what I what I have learned is that I do have a form of PTSD. Um, I, I I I don't sleep well at night. Even still, eight it's been eight years, and I still don't sleep well at night. Um, I have another. I have a two-year-old son, almost three. And uh, his mother, like, his mother was dead set on uh, co-sleep, and it's just something that, I mean, I I, I can't tell you how many nights I've spent on the couch because of it, because I just, I can't, you know, like, um, I've woken up, I've thrown her off the bed before, because uh, it just, you you wake up in that state, and it's, you know, you're freaking out, and it's something that I didn't, I didn't want to accept for a long time that I had. Because, you know, I have uh, a cousin who was first wave into uh, Baghdad when we went in, when America went in uh, back in two thousand three, and I mean that kid was, you know, one of my closest cousins, and I you know I saw what it did to him and how screwed up he was from the stuff that he saw, and it's just like I no I don't have PTSD no I don't but then. It was something that that was actually hard to accept for me. That you know, I did have trauma from what I from what had happened. But you know, getting back to the program itself, just the 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 injustice and the hypocrisy of what I saw in there was uh, unreal, um, especially coming from a. a, a, a a company and a group that claims to be Christian. Uh, I grew up, you know, my family, my, I said, my father was very religious um, because that's, you know, what took him out of his addictions. And then going into this place, I thought it was going to be, you know, a, a Christ-like, you know, form of rehabilitation. And these people were, you know, One of the guys that I went into the program with was was gay and they threw him back in jail. Because he would not say that that's not why that was not the official reason that they for kicking him out. But that was the reason they kicked him out and threw him back into the court system was because he was gay. You know, there was another guy who was basically, you know, he said he was an atheist. And when things went wrong in the program, he was put on a, like, house restriction where you can't leave, and his heart medicine ran out. And they said, okay, well, you can't go get your medicine, you're on house restriction. So, okay, well, what are you going to (laughs) do? I either have to go get my medicine or, or what? So this program, again, threw this guy back in prison because he was an atheist, and that's. I mean, whereas with the justice system, you know, there's definitely a million problems, but with with the treatment is what I saw with that with that program, especially being they say it's private, but it's. They're, the whole thing is being funded by the state. And then they're just, they're throwing guys back in due to religious beliefs, which is a complete contradiction between the separation of church and state. Exactly. The place that I was at was in Hartford. You know, I'm not going to name the specific names of the people running it. I could, but I, I'm not going to do that. They, I mean, they were cherry-picking what they wanted for the people that they wanted there, and then if you did not fit that mold when you got in there, they'd throw you right back out. Not to mention that this place is also, it's called a work therapy program. So we were working 40 hours plus a week, and they said that's what provided us our food, even though we were signed up and we were, you know, they were giving... When I got out they, and they gave me my, my snap card, I went until I found a job, until I got in with the company that I'm in now, which I've been for, for eight years, they, they were giving me like 340 bucks a month for benefits. And that was when I was in there. So they were taking that money and that's how we were fed. But then we were doing 40 hours of work a week for free. 40 hours plus. I mean, it, it was wild. I
0: yeah, mean, it's that... certainly a, a messed up system, sort of a, a quasi-crony system where they're taking money from the government but also taking money from private charity but not telling you know, the people giving money through private charity that they're taking money from the government. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And it was, I mean, they they couldn't keep counselors there, like actual addiction counselors, like people who had gone to school would come in there as like an entry-level job and they would stay there. I was, like I said, I was in there nine months and I saw about five or six of my own counselors because you, you each get assigned a counselor. They couldn't keep them because they'd get in there and they'd say, what, this is not, this is not how you you, you help a person who's, who has an addiction? It was it was wild.
0: Um, yeah, it seems like the the objective. I don't know what the objective was, but it doesn't sound like it was to uh, to help a- addicts to help people become reformed, reintegrate into society. Not to say that that didn't happen because it sounds like that did happen with you. Um, maybe that was com- everything done a- on your own. Maybe that was you know self motivated and self actualization, not really the work of this program. But uh, yeah, it definitely puts into question their tactics. They certainly sound pretty shady. And David, I want to thank you for, for coming on the show to talk about everything that's happened to you um, over the past eight years. You know, I give you immense credit to come forward and share this story um, on, a, on a show like this. Um, hopefully, and I'm sure there are people out there who... Are suffering through similar similar situations, and hopefully this can this can help at least one person.
1: Definitely know that there are, and I mean, I know we, you you know you 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 asked if I would kind of touch on where I really turned into you know focusing on liberty, and that's really where it it did lead me was because what I what I ultimately realized was. There was a quote that I had read it in when I was in high school. We kinda of briefly touched on the book Paradise Lost. Which is the kind of like this weird it was like it's like the weird story about how the devil got thrown out of heaven and everything. But there's a quote in there that really really kinda of defined my my climb out of where I was. And it's that it was used in seven and everything, um, the movie Seven. You know, long is the road and hard that out of hell leads up to the light. And what I learned in that, that program was that, you know, if you want to make a change in your life, you, can't ask, you can ask for help, but you can't, you can't change your own, you know, you can't expect others to change your own life. It's something that you have to commit to. It's something that you have to work at every day. Especially if, if, if you're addicted to any kind of substance. I don't care whether it's alcohol, which was you know, mine. That was my drug of choice. The, you know, heroin, which I've, I have so many friends and, and people that I love that have been affected by that. You, you can't rely on, you, especially the government, to get you out of that. It's, it's something that you have to take on yourself. Which is, you know, I think that is the truest liberty is to actually become your own person and stop, I guess, lending your your desires to the the whims of of the government or the nanny state. Just anything you, you have to take control of your own life. Which I think that's you know the most libertarian thing that you can do is is be self sufficient and self-reliant and you know learn the power of yourself and not rely on on other people
0: 100 percent agree with you and i think as libertarians we need to do a better job of highlighting that and you know that's one of the things i've been doing recently on this show bringing you on um, bringing colin krieger on yeah those are great aaron aaron seidel several guests who, who have been through some pretty rough situations and, uh, and we're able to, to bounce back. So I just want to give you a chance if you want to give any, uh, any party words before I let you go.
1: The only thing that I can say is, you know, you have to be true to yourself. And like I said, relying on, you know, you can have your friends, you can have your family, and, and that's fine. But, but asking the state itself to try and take care of you, that's, that's just not the answer to go with. I mean, that, that's what I learned from my time in, in the system was that you have to actually do it for yourself. You can't rely on the system to make choices for you or you're going to always be part of that system and you will never have your own identity.
0: That's sound advice. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this story.
1: I really appreciate it, John.
0: Thank you. I want to thank everybody for listening to today's show. I think we can all agree that this is that this was both a very important topic but also very uncomfortable. I give David tremendous credit for having the the courage to share his story. And hopefully if there's somebody out there going through a rough time something similar to this, you know, I hope that David's story and the way he's been able to Move on with his life and improve his life. I hope that gives people hope. That's all I'm going to say about today's interview. I just want to add one thing, guys, and I think you know what that is. If you aren't in the Lions of Liberty Pride, get on it, guys. Get in the Pride. We have, as of recording time, I think 87 members in the Pride. January was a record setting month. Um, We're well on our way to our next goal of $1,000 per month. Right now, we're at like 800 and change. So a little less than $200 in pledges and subscriptions to get to that $1,000 per month. Once we hit that $1,000 per month level, um, we're going to be primed and ready to go and attend um, a bunch of different libertarian events over the next, I don't know, forever, I guess. You can join the pride by visiting lionsofliberty.com support. So, I want to encourage you guys to donate. There's three different tiers that we have. The $25 tier, which is a lot of fun, has a weekly conference call every single month. You also get free t-shirts, which is cool, a free koozie. And uh, you get a big discount at the store. The $15 level, you don't get the conference call. You get one t-shirt, one koozie. The $5 level, you don't get the free stuff. But you get access to all of our bonus content, which, of course, you get also at the $10 and $25 level. And all levels get access to our secret Facebook group, the Lions Liberty Pride. So don't hesitate any longer. This is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to really make an impact and help us to take this show to the next level. So that's all I got for today. I want to thank you all for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fire is a liberty burning.